Uh, anybody who knows me semi-well knows that I'm actually a little bit of a nerd. So I was a very good student in high school. I was the person in college who sat in the front row and took all the notes. That was me. And I got good grades. And I'm also a rule follower. So I tend to like naturally follow the rules. Um, and so in all my history, I can remember cheating one time. It was, I was in seventh form, because I was in New Zealand, which is the equivalent of your senior year, and it was my biology class. Seventh form, yes. And it was my biology class, and the biology teacher assigned um, a, an assessment that we felt was particularly extreme. And what she'd asked us to do was, there was some kind of obscure topic, I can't remember what it was, but we had to do, come to class and in a timed sense, write an essay on this obscure topic that was timed and we weren't allowed any books or references. So basically we had to learn the topic well enough that we could come to class and write the essay. Well, in general, most of our biology class decided that that was ridiculous. And so there was this kind of collective agreement amongst our class that we were going to cheat. And so me, as much as I, uh, you know, until now, like, grade-A student, follow all the rules, this one time I actually came into agreement. Like, this is a little bit ridiculous, and I'm with you. I'm going to cheat too. And um, apparently I hadn't learned very much about cheating, so I did let some people know that this is what I was going to do. <laughs> and so what I actually did was I went into my sister's room who had taken the class the year before. I found the essay that she wrote and I copied it. But I just made it look a little messy and bits crossed out as if I'd written it in class. And then when we went to do the assignment, I pretended I was writing and then I traded it in. And so then as we left, I was kind of like, ha ha, yeah, like, anyways, what happened was there was actually two biology classes in my grade that year. And our class cheated, but the other class didn't. And they found out that most of our class had cheated. And here's my problem. Here's where it all went south. It was so shocking that I cheated because it was not my natural nature that when the story got told to that class, whose was the one name that got mentioned? As in, our class cheated, even Carla. So when this got told on, because we have a whole class who's now raging against the injustice, guess who the one person who got caught? Me. And it was horrible. I got called out of economics class. I got pulled into the vice principal's office. Me, who's never been in trouble in all my life, cried my eyes out to the vice principal. I never thought I could have denied it. That was, anyways, I wasn't going to add lying to cheating. But cried my eyes out to the vice principal. Cried my eyes out confessing to my parents before the vice principal caught them. Cried my eyes out apologizing to the biology teacher. And then had some extreme level of consequence. And I really learned that cheating is a bad idea. <laughs> now, there's a reason I tell you this story, right? And I just want to connect back a couple of weeks ago, for those of you who are here, um, I did a message in talking about vision and choices, and we kind of got into the idea of like, man, how about you reap what you sow? So how about we be strategic about what we sow into, right? And I kind of want to pick up from that, and I want to expand a little bit and add another principle to it. 
And the way I first introduced it is I heard this message when I was in Bible college that literally, I don't remember any of the other content, but I remember this statement and it stuck with me forever. And this is what they said, live your life as if there is no such thing as a secret. Live your life as if there's no such thing as a secret. Now, if you look at that biblically, you'll find this in Matthew 6. This is Jesus talking, be careful to not practice your righteousness in front of others to be seen by them. If you do, you will have no reward from your Father in heaven. When you give to the needy, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing so that your giving may be in secret. Then your Father who sees what is done in secret will reward you. And that passage actually goes on to say that similar statement three times. Like when you give, do it in secret and your Father will reward you. When you pray, go into the secret place. And when you fast, do it in secret, right? But then, and so there's this real positive sense of what you do in secret that gets rewarded. But then the Bible also in Luke 12 tells you the same thing, but in a negative sense. It says, Jesus began to speak first to his disciples saying, be on your guard against the yeast of the Pharisees, which is hypocrisy. There is nothing concealed that will not be disclosed or hidden that will not be made known. What you have said in the dark will be heard in the daylight. What you've whispered in the air in the inner rooms will be proclaimed from the roofs. And so what... What he's saying is here, look, the good things that you store away in the secret are going to be rewarded. But the things that you attempt to disclose and hide in the darkness are also going to be brought out into the open. But the thing that, that he actually also goes on to say is he actually anchors both of these passages in eternity. In other words, there's a reality sometimes of that in the here and now. Like, look, sometimes when you cheat, you get caught. Sometimes you, like that which you did in secret got brought right out into the open and you experience that immediately. Sometimes you get your breakthrough and your reward for good things in the immediate. But in this context, Jesus is actually not just talking about the immediate. He's talking about eternity. Right In Matthew 6, he goes on, so he does this, like, look, when you give and when you pray and when you fast, but he goes on to say this, do not store up for yourself treasure on earth where moth and vermin destroy and where thieves break in and steal. Store up for yourself treasure in heaven where moth and vermin do not destroy and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Right, So he's actually putting it in the context of the heavenly realm. But Luke does the same thing and in a different direction. I tell you, my friends, do not be afraid of those who kill the body and after that can do no more. I will show you whom you should fear. fear and, and this is in the context of what you hide away in secret, right? Fear him who after your body has been killed has authority to throw you into hell. Yes, I tell you, fear him. And so what you see is it's like, man, really, we're not as much talking about the here and now as the biblical reality that one day I actually stand before Jesus and give an account for my life, right? Um, you know, as, as a part of doing the biblical worldview class that we've been going through, 
I did end up doing a whole class on the topic of hell last week. And um, honestly, it was not a class that I ever thought I would do. It's not a class that I wanted to do. And I get no delight in the topic. But I knew there were so many questions around it and actually so much misunderstanding around that particular topic, especially amongst believers, that it felt really necessary. And so, I, man, I did so much research and so much reading. I would stagger home at the end of the day and Aaron would be like, how was your day? And I'd be like, I've been reading on hell for about five hours. And he'd be like, I'm sorry. And I'm like, yeah, that's about right for how I feel. Right. But as, as I got into the topic, um, actually here's, I want to read you this quote. At some point in the 1960s, hell disappeared. No one could say for certain when this happened. First it was there and then it wasn't. Different people became aware of the disappearance of hell at different times. Some realized that they had been living for years as though hell did not exist without having consciously registered its disappearance. Others realized that they had been behaving out of habit as though hell was still there, though in fact they had ceased to believe in its existence long ago. On the whole, the disappearance of hell was a great relief, though it brought new problems. And... And as we, as we kind of looked into the history of belief and thought over time, um, what we kind of talked about in that class was like from kind of from back into the 1700s and onwards was this decline in belief in eternity, right? To the impact that um, over time, really what you'd find in our current culture is that the idea of a heaven or a hell has been relegated completely to the realm of myth. You know, like that's, that's for you, but that's not for me. You know, we, we are far more enlightened than to believe in such a mythical place, right? But what we also found was like over time in Christianity, you had your early church fathers and your earlier preachers who actually talked about hell as very real and very motivational, until somewhere along the way, church leaders actually began to struggle with the idea that hell sounded terrible and made God look bad. And so to rescue God's reputation, we stopped talking about it. In fact, let me read you a, read you a quote from one leader. Hell has been relegated to the far off corners of the Christian mind, there to sleep in the deep shadow as a thing needless in our enlightened and progressive age. And so uh, along with this, it comes like, man, kind of a general, in general loss of our concept of eternity, right? So what comes happen is it's just kind of seen as a place that you go as you die, where heaven is a place where you go when you die, but not really a reality that I live under now, right? And it's John Tyson, who's a leader that I follow, he calls this, in our culture, the eclipse of the eternal with the imminent. In other words, the focus so exists on this life in the here and now with eternity being a like way off far thought that's been relegated somewhere else. And my concern about this obviously is number one, it's absolutely not biblical. And number two is that, man, if eternity isn't central to the way I look at this life, then there's going to be some, the product of that is going to be these three things. When I lose sight of eternity, self becomes center, morality becomes convenient, and purpose becomes temporal. I'm going to get into each of these 
three things, right? So self-becoming center. They describe the current culture that we live in as the age of the psychological man. In other words, your feelings and your desires matter more than anything else, right? So it is completely acceptable in culture that there is no moral standard. Do what feels right to you. And which means when you prioritize your feelings, when you prioritize your inner world, then you are going to live for what? Me. If there is no afterlife, then my highest goal becomes to be happy and experience pleasure in this life. Right? And man, I. I found this so fascinating. There was a study that was done over a 24-year period and they put almost, they put almost 16,500 college students through a standardized narcissistic personality inventory every year for 24 years. And what they found was that the average college student at the end of the time period of the survey was 30% more narcissistic than the average college student from when they began the survey. Right? Now, I'll give you a minute to let that sink in because what statistics are showing is that the personality disorder of narcissism is increasing in our society. Now, this is purely my speculation, but I do find it fascinating that the more and more we lose concept of eternity and write it off as mythological, more and more we're seeing the increase of the absolute self-centered nature of a personality disorder. Right? And what happened to get us there? Well, we removed God and then I get to live in freedom, right? But freedom means I can do whatever I want to do. My freedom is that I can completely live for myself. I completely pursue my own happiness, my own pleasure, regardless of its consequence on anybody else. Which the Bible calls slavery. Right? But, but here's the thing. It's one thing to be able to go, oh, that's happening in the culture around us and not be aware of how perhaps that's even flowed over into the way that I walk with Jesus, right? Because if I don't live with an eternal reality in mind, the way that I walk with Jesus still becomes about my here and now, right? So what happens is I start putting a demand on the fact that my relationship with Jesus is supposed to mean that I live happy in this world, Right? So it's that my prayers get answered, it's that my miracle comes, it's that my faith gets my breakthrough, and that like all the things that I need are done and given to me, and that's what relationship with Jesus looks like. Now, I'm not saying that our relationship with Jesus doesn't benefit this life, because it very much does. It very much does. But I was actually talking um, to somebody the other day, not somebody from here or from our church, but she was telling me, um, she was saying, you know, for years, she'd prayed for a breakthrough in a situation with her husband. So for years, there was a, a shift relationally that she needed to see happening. And she said, I prayed and I prayed and I fasted and I prayed and nothing changed. And she said, I don't pray anymore. 
In fact, I am not connected with Jesus anymore because honestly, my heart says, what's the point? And I'm like, oh man. Man, look, I have compassion for disappointment. I have compassion for the hard situations that we find ourselves in when the break, you know, we sing a lot of songs about faith getting breakthrough and faith getting miracles. And I like those songs. And sometimes I get worried that we don't sing songs about how faith looks like endurance, right? Because it it can sometimes sow into this self-centered belief thing that it's like, this is all about me getting what I want now. When it's like, man, um, Paul in 1 Corinthians 15, 19 writes this, if only in this life we have hope in Christ, we are of all people the most to be pitied. If only in this life we have hope in Christ, we are of all people most to be pitied. Why? Right? Why? Why would he say that? Look at how Paul lived. Paul lived at an extreme level of self-sacrifice, self-denial, persecution, and, and like bodily harm, right? And what motivated him to get stoned in one city and still get himself up and go to the next city was the fact that his hope was not in this life, right? And so which led him to say like, look, if all there is is the here and now, I am foolish and you should pity me. But what I'm doing in this living for something outside of myself is literally because my hope actually isn't in the here and now, it's in the eternity, right? So eternity becomes the reality which actually motivates me towards self-denial. How about morality becoming convenient? Oh man, let me give you some more studies. Here was, okay, this is a study done on American adults. Get this, 74% of men and 68% of women said they would have an affair if they knew that they would not get caught. Now, I just also want to point out that 65% of American adults say that they're Christian. Right? Now, at the same time, 99% of them surveyed stated that they expect their spouse to stay faithful And 80% of them say that infidelity is wrong. Right, figure that out. Like now you're thinking about, wait a minute, that's all kinds of messed up. Yes. Let me give you another one. There was a a couple years ago, there was a study that was done on 209 Christian teenagers. And they were asked if they were in a situation where they could avoid a consequence by lying, would they lie? 204 said yes immediately. One said, I'll pray about it, which I'm like, (laughs) sounds spiritual, but how do you expect that conversation with Jesus to go? Right? Like, come on now. And four out of 209 said no. Okay. So then they asked the same, do you believe that lying is wrong? All 209 of them said yes. I believe that lying is wrong, but if I could get out of a consequence, I would. 204 out of 209, right? And when they asked wh- were asked why they thought it was wrong, 50% of them said the Bible says so, right? Now, 
you have to ask, well, why is there then such a disconnect between belief and behaviour? How is there such a disconnect that 80% of people could say infidelity is wrong, but 74% of men would say, I'd do it anyways if I knew I wouldn't get caught? Well, it happens. This starts to happen when I only view my choices through the window of the impact in the here and now. Right? If my only motivation is the reward in the immediate or the consequence in the immediate, as soon as I remove the possibility of a consequence, my morality becomes gray. As in, if I have got no sense of any longer term consequence, what I might do for the benefit of the now. And have you, have you ever noticed that you, we train our children in two different ways? What are the two motivators for our children to behave? Reward and consequence. <laughs> Fear. <laughs> Reward and consequence. As in, as in the ideal is, like and many parents in here have probably done this, like our little reward charts on the fridge. And if you do this enough times and you get your 10 stickers, we'll go to Target and you'll get to choose a prize. And the delight is when they choose to be motivated by reward. That is way the more pleasant way. But we have, so we have the reward that's pulling them on, but on the other side, we have the consequence that will train them if they do not choose to be motivated by reward. In other words, let me help you understand, right? Because have you ever seen children who've been raised without consequence? What happens? Sociopaths in the making. (laughs) Right? But biblically, it's the same deal. Biblically, we're motivated, like the goal is that the reward of eternity would pull you on. But there's also a boundary line that exists on the consequence side too that we stop talking about. And the Bible calls it, in in 2 Peter 1, the Bible calls it nearsighted, it calls it blind, and it calls it foolish. Why? Why does the Bible call it foolish? Because to live without a concept of eternal consequence is living as if God does not exist. 2 Corinthians 5, 9, and 10. So we make it our goal to please Him. For we must all appear for the judgment seat of Christ. We all must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that each of us may receive what is due us for the things done while in the body, whether good or bad. That word goal, I mean, you look at it in other translations. Our ambition is to be pleasing to Him. We make it our life's passion to be pleasing to Him. Why? Well, we live under the reality of a judgment seat. Now, Let me be clear. The judgment seat for the believer is not where you get judged for your sins, right? Christ already took that penalty into himself and into their body. So that is not the judgment seat that we face. The judgment seat that the believer faces is when they stand before Jesus and give an account for their life to determine what level of reward they will live in. Okay, so it's unto reward. However, that is still a sobering reality 
right? Because the Bible says we will actually be judged on our actions, we will be judged on our words, we will be judged on our thoughts, and we'll be judged on our motives. And when you think about that, that's a little sobering. Right? And, and here's the thing is like, my goal is not at all to motivate through fear. My goal is not to make you afraid of the last day because that's not biblical at all. Right? But I would say that there's a difference between an unhealthy fear and the fear of the Lord. Right? And when Paul writes this, he says, We make it our goal to please him, for we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, so that each of us may receive what is due for the things done, whether good or bad. The very next thing that he says is, Since then, we know what it is to fear the Lord. In other words, there's a reality. That you, we, like, so the fear of the Lord is, is a reverence, it's an honor. We honor the Lord, right? So there's a reality that exists in our heart that it's like, this is what you have expressed as reality and I will honor it as true no, how, no matter how much discomfort it causes me, right? Like I'm gonna hold this in front of me as reality. You know, 2 Peter 3.11 asks the question, what kind of people ought you to be? You ought to live holy and godly lives as you look forward to the day of God and speed up His coming. What does that mean? Is eternity is the thing that motivates you to holiness now. In other words, when we live under the reality that one day, man, I'm gonna stand before Jesus and we're gonna be having a conversation I live under that in the daily to go, man, if that is true, then who I ought to I be today? Holy and godly, right? You know, I heard it said this, it is amazing how pure a person can live when they realize they have to give an account of their life before God. Eternity creates a unique reality, doesn't it? Okay, here's the last one, when purpose becomes temporal. And when I use the word temporal, I mean really without, it, temporal is the idea of here and now without any concept of a greater spiritual reality, right? Because when, when we live only for the here and now, when we lose sight of eternity, right? Well, how do we use our time and how do we use our, our resources, to build our own kingdom. I've got another quote for you. The dangers of disappointed expectations must further be increased by the erosion of faith in the next world. Those who can believe that what happens on earth is but a brief prelude to an eternal existence will set any tendency towards envy with the thought that the success of others is a momentary phenomenon against the backdrop of an eternal life. But when a belief in an afterlife is dismissed as a childish and scientifically impossible opiate, the pressure to succeed and find fulfillment will inevitably intensify by the awareness that one has only a single and frighteningly fleeting opportunity to do so. In such a context, earthly achievement can no longer be seen as an overture to what one may realize in another world. Rather, they are the sum total 
of all that one will ever amount to. Now, I know that's a little like wordy, but what, what is he saying? He's saying when we lose sight of eternity, all that happens is we fix our eyes on what success looks like in the here and now. Right? And so now my time, my investment, all of that goes into building whatever I think that success looks like in this world. Right? And the more that um, we read about this is that the loss of the reality of eternity has really made people time poor. Because we've lost sight of the time being our valuablest resource and what we're investing it towards. Right? C.S. Lewis says this, if you read history, you will find that the Christians who did most for the present world were precisely those who thought most of the next. It is since Christians have largely ceased to think of the other world that they have become so ineffective in this one. You know, one of the words in um, 1 Corinthians that's used to describe our time here on earth is that we're called builders. Builders, which means that we're building something. All of us are actually building something. But what we build is gonna be determined by what the end goal is in mind, right? And... and um, as I was thinking about this, it made me think of the story of the three little pigs. You guys remember the story of the three little pigs? Come on, right? Three little pigs. Three little sibling pigs go out into the world to find their way. And so what do they need to do? They need to build a house. So three little pigs are off to market to buy the materials to build the house. And along the way, the first little pig comes up against a guy selling straw. And the third, the, the little pig thinks to himself, like if I... If I buy the straw, I don't have to keep going to market. I'll have lots more time to play and this will be a much easier house to build. So yeah, he buys the straw and he goes and builds a house of straw. And what happens? A big bad wolf comes along and he huffs and he puffs and he blows the house down. Now, what I discovered is the version of the story that I was told when I was a little kid was that little pig ran away and hid in his brother's house. But when I read it online, no, no, that pig got eaten by the wolf. I was like, I think I got told a like dumbed down version of the fairy tale, right? Because sorry, no more little pig. <laughs> right? And then what happens is the, like the second little pig is going on his way to market and he makes a little bit further and he comes across a guy selling sticks. Same story. Easier, more convenient, allows me more time to play. So he builds, what happens? That little pig, dead, eaten. <laughs> and we have one little pig. You, just, you didn't know this was so biblical. We have one little pig who makes it to market, takes, like, puts in the energy, hauls the bricks back, builds a proper house, and what happens? A wolf ends up boiling in a hot pot of thing under his chimney. That's the end of that story. Hot, a pot of water, <laughs> boiling water, boiling water when the wolf comes down the chimney and the wolf dies. <laughs> one in three pigs. Now, what's the moral of the story? Because there's a moral of that story. I wrote my own moral of the story. That two of three pigs did not build with the end in mind. Two of the three pigs lived for the here and now, and they took the easiest, funnest way. But there was a future point where the quality of their work was tested, and the result was disastrous. Which made me wonder if a believer wrote that story. Because... I want you to re read 1 Corinthians 3, verse 10 to 15. This is Paul writing. 
By the grace God has given me, I laid a foundation as a wise builder and someone else is building on it. But each one should build with care for no one can lay any foundation other than the one already laid, which is Jesus Christ. If anyone builds on this foundation using gold, silver, costly stones, wood, hay or straw, their work will be shown for what it is because the day will bring it to light. It will be revealed with fire and the fire will test the quality of each person's work. If what has been built survives, the builder will receive a reward. If it is burned up, the builder will suffer loss, but yet will be saved, even though only as one escaping through the flames. Now, again, this is about reward. It's not about salvation, right? That's made clear. But the, the word picture creates is basically like you're coming at the, you know, at the end of the age, you're coming before Jesus and all the accumulation of your life's work, everything that you have built in this life is gathered up and comes before Jesus. And let's just say it's put in a big pile. Right, And so and the different quality of the things that you've invested in over your life is represented by the different materials, gold, silver, precious stones, or wood, hay, or straw. Right, And so here's this big pile of like, this is everything I invested into in this life. And Jesus leans forward. Right? And whatever burns up is gone and whatever remains determines your reward. It's another actually really sobering picture, right? Because it actually brings home the reality that you can be saved, but your entire life's work might be meaningless. In other words, you could actually have invested your life in eternity 0% and still be saved. It creates a picture of a partial reward scenario, right? That some will remain and some will whoop. And then it creates the picture of a full reward. That when Jesus burn, puts to the fire the result of my life, it gets revealed as gold. And that picture describes the motivation for how you invest and how you build in this life. Right, that I don't want what I invest in to be considered hay, straw, or wood, highly flammable. That man, when I get to that day, I want there to be gold in that fire, right? And, and, and you know, somebody who might feel like it sounds really holy might say, well, I don't do it for the reward. I'm not interested in reward. And I'm like, look, Here's the deal. Every single New Testament author was. If you read, you read looking for eternity throughout the Bible, you will find that every single New Testament author lived under a strong, strong awareness of eternity and the reward that they will find there. And you'll, find, you'll discover that it was the absolute motivation for how they lived their life and what they did and what they invested in. So I would suggest that we would be extremely foolish to overlook that in this life and not recognize actually like the quality of what that's going to mean for the next life. So why is it important to keep our eyes fixed on eternity? Man, James says that this life is a vapor. It's but a minute, right? 
And so the reality is, is this life is actually supposed to be lived in light of that one. That one's the greater reality. This one's the shadow. And, and eternity is presented as the motivator to live beyond myself. It becomes the motivator through which I do self-denial and self-sacrifice. It becomes the motivator for why I give myself away, right? Eternity is the motivator to pursue purity. It's why we make moral good choices in the here and now, regardless of consequence in the here and now. And eternity is the motivation to build with intentionality and to invest my resources in light of the next life. And lately, you know, the more that I've meditated on this, and I don't know, maybe as you get older, eternity becomes a stronger reality. But the more that I've meditated on it, the more I've just become my prayer of, from Matthew 6, where Jesus says, look, don't store up your treasures in this earth. And, and I just want you to, I want to be clear. It's just like, look, that passage is somewhat about money, but it's not just about money. He's not saying don't save. He's not saying don't have a retirement account. There's, some, there's wisdom, right? He's challenging what's your treasure. It's really about what you define as treasure. Because when you get a true heavenly vision, you discover that money is actually a lesser thing. There are things that Jesus values so much more, right? And so he says, look, store up your treasure in heaven because where your treasure is, there's your, that's where your heart's gonna be. And then he goes on to say that the, the eye that is set on what, it, a, a good translation of it is the, the eye that is set on one voyage is full of light. The, the eye that has one destination in mind, right? And, and so my prayer just lately has been like, Jesus, capture my heart with what heaven values as treasure. And let me be aware in the day-to-day to make sure that I'm doing things in the day-to-day that store up there for the long term. So can I pray? So Father, first of all, I thank you that eternity is a promise. It's a reward. God, I just, I ask that you would capture our hearts with a vision of eternity. I said you'd capture our minds, God, that let us be so convicted of the reality of eternity that it literally changes the way that we live this life. God, for those who are struggling with purity, I ask for such a vision of eternity that it brings breakthrough in the here and now. But God, I I just ask that it would begin to draw us and call us towards how we live, the choices that we make, towards investing, using this life to invest in that reality. God, capture our heart with what it looks like to store up treasure in heaven. And would you reveal to us what it is that you treasure? In Jesus' name, amen.